Um, man, I'm glad to be back. My dad was here last week, and I heard from so many people um, he delivered straight fire. So um, if you were here, um, you can get excited about that. Was it good or no? Everybody lying to me? All right. It's like, he's your dad. We'll just lie to you and tell you it was good. Um, but seriously, it was good. I'm glad to be back um, as we begin this brand new series in both campuses. I'm actually via video in Wesley Chapel um, today, and that's awesome because we're one church in two locations, and so there's something special about learning together, studying the scriptures together, and so that's what's happening as we start this brand new series called U-Term. And as we launch it, there's a couple questions I have for you, and the first one may be kind of initiated more toward men, but I don't want to just categorize men in this, but how many of you absolutely refuse to follow directions of any kind. Like you just refuse to follow directions. So if you're going somewhere, it doesn't matter how lost you are, how far off the beaten path you are, you're just like, I'm gonna figure it out. I'm gonna figure out how to get back. I'm gonna, I don't need directions. And even though now like you have directions on your phone, you have GPS, how many remember like the MapQuest directions that you'd have to use to print off and have them in your car so then you'd almost kill people as you're trying to figure out where to go? Um, but you just refuse to follow directions. It doesn't matter where you're going or what's happening. You just will do it the hard way. And then eventually, like six U-turns later, some of them legal, some of them illegal, you finally find your way back to where you want to be. And the whole thing about that is you know, obviously, where you're coming from, but you're not quite sure how to get to where you want to go. Um, here's a second question. This is kind of related. How many of you as a child specifically, maybe elementary age, maybe into like teenage years, how many of you ever ran away from home at some point along the way? Like confession. You just at some point you're like, I'm done and I'm running away. When I was about eight years old, um, I decided I was going to run away. Um, that lasted for about 23 minutes, but I got really angry with my mom specifically. And if you ever met my mom, you'll like, be like, how could you ever get angry at her for anything? But I got really angry at my mom, and um, I uttered that phrase that you don't ever want to hear from your kid. My wife is not looking for, forward to this because we know at some point one of our kids will say this. But I just looked at my mom, and I'm like, I wish I had a different mom. I wish I had Billy's mom down the street. And my mom's just like, well, you know what? Right now I wish you had Billy's mom down the street as well. So we're actually, we agree on that. Um, and I just remember I was so mad that I, I wrote this little like eight-year-old version of a runaway letter and I stuck it on my pillow and I packed a little like duffel bag thing and I waited for my mom to not be looking. I slipped out the door and then, and this is how every story is, I think. I get like a block away, like right down the street and I'm like, where am I going? Like where... I have nowhere to go. I'm already a block away, and I'm getting a little nervous, um, so I don't want to go much further. And I just, because when you run away from home as a kid, it's all about away from with no thought of where to, right? So all you're thinking about is, I got to get away from here. I'm mad. I got to go. I got to go. I got to go. And you're all about away from, but you don't ever think about where to. You don't ever have a plan. You don't ever know where you're going to end up. So I waited and snuck back in the house, and I had no place else to go, so I just went under the bed, you know, hoping that she wouldn't see me for a while, and that would create panic, and I'd make my point, and I just remember my mom coming in for what seemed like forever, and she starts laughing, reading the note on my pillow, and she's like, get out from under the bed, and so I get out from under the bed, and I think I got spanked at the end of that whole thing, so that's how my runaway from home experience um, all went down. But the whole point is, when we're running away, it's all about getting away. It's all about away from, and there's no thought of where to. Here's the other question, and this is one where you can just not raise your hand and don't elbow anybody. This is kind of personal, but ha have, you, have you ever run away from God? 
Have you ever walked away, run away from God? And I don't mean like physically, though there may have been a physical component. You may have literally gone somewhere. But it's just that thing of like, I know this is what God wants me to do. I know this is the decision I should make. I know this is what I should walk away from. And you just get to the place to go, I'm, I'm not going to do it. I just know. I'm not going to engage in that. I'm not going to follow that. I'm not going to walk away from that. And you, in that sense, you, you kind of run from God. For, for others of us, and maybe it's just a couple of us, whether you're online or, or in the room, but you're a part of that category where at some point along the way, you're running from God in order to appease your conscience looked like just deciding there was no God. And so there was like a behavior, there was a thing that you were going after, and the easiest way to kind of finesse and appease your conscience was just to come to the conclusion, well, there is no God. And then after you came up with the conclusion there is no God, you went to find supporting arguments for your decision already made that there is no God in order for you to feel better about yourself. But if you're really honest, there's moments when you're staring up at the ceiling or everything's quiet and you know that that's not the case. Like you made a decision and then you found intellectual reasons to support the decision so you could tell people. But at the end of the day, you don't want to admit there's a God because you're accountable to that God. And in that way, you've kind of run. All of our running kind of looks the same. We run relationally. We run in terms of financial decisions. We run in regard to business decisions. We run in terms of our, our pursuits, our time, our priorities. Maybe for some of you in early age, you felt like in some way God was calling you to some kind of vocational ministry. You felt like God was calling you to be involved in a non-for-profit, and you just made every excuse in the world, every, I'm not going to make that much money, and you came up with as many reasons as possible, and at the end of the day, like was the case for about six years of my life, you, you just ran from God. You're running from God. And, and again, it's not that maybe you've abandoned completely. Hey, here's the thing, and this is why this series is going to be so relevant to all of us, is you can be the guy that you're like theologically on point. You've never missed a day of sitting in a, a row. You're in a community group. People look to you. And yet there's this one area that maybe nobody even knows about, and you know in your heart you've run from God. It may be overt for you, like everybody, even if you don't believe what you know that person believes, you're like, oh, if there is a God, they're running from him. Or it may be incredibly covert. You haven't abandoned anything. You still believe in Jesus. But at the end of the day, you're kind of running from God. And it's also not that you don't pray. Like all of us, I think at certain points, even if you're a staunch atheist, there's probably been a moment where embarrassingly you've, embarrassingly you've prayed to a God you don't believe in. Like if the circumstances are just right, we pray. But your prayers are not prayers of surrender. Your prayers are God. Okay, God, um, I want you to get involved in this one area right here. Like, I want you to get involved in, God, eyes here, you're kind of losing focus because I'm not talking about this stuff over here. God, I want you to get involved here. I want you to intervene here. And your prayers aren't prayers of surrender. Your prayers are, God, I just want you to do this right here. And in that way, you kind of run. And at some point along the way, I don't care who you are, how old you are, where you come from, what your story is, we all at some point have run, are running, or we will run. And again, it may not be in some extreme way. It may be in that one area where you're just resisting. And we kind of all run for the same reason. And the reason that we ultimately run from God is because we don't want to be told what to do. We don't want to be told what to do because we think we're going to miss out on something. 
So you're a teenager and you're like, okay, she's hot, but she's not a Christian. And I, want, I heard that that's kind of, that, that could go badly. And so it's much easier to become a Christian than it is to become hot. And so I'm just going to kind of get into this anyway, and, and God will just kind of work it out on the other end. And I just, I'm just not going to do that because I'm afraid and there's this underlying fear and kind of misplaced idea that God can't be trusted, that God's not good in what he's prompting me to do. And so I'm just afraid I'm going to miss out, and so I'm not going to do it. I am going to do it. I am going to sign. I am going to walk away. I am going to just kind of do my own deal. And then the second reason I think that we run, and this is kind of universal, is to quote Philip Yancey, is that there's moments of our life or there's a season of our life where all of a sudden we start to confuse life with God where all of a sudden things go sideways and out of control, and so we think God's out of control. Or things don't work out the way we think that they should work out, and we just kind of feel alone, and so we start to feel like God's left us alone. Things just kind of hit the fan, and we don't know where to go next, and so we feel like God doesn't know where to go next. And so we start to confuse the circumstances of our life and our life with God, and we, we walk away or we run away. And so for the next couple of weeks, what I want to do is I want to look at this whole dynamic of running from God. And it, it is so relevant from right here on this stage with me all the way to you. Again, regardless of your background, regardless of how long you follow Jesus, or maybe you're in the place of investigating faith, and in that way you're running from God. All of us at heart are runners. And so we're going to look at this dynamic through the most infamous runner of all time that you've probably heard about, a guy by the name of Jonah. And as we're going to discover, Jonah's story really is, universally, is our story. Like, you will find yourself in the story of Jonah. Now, here's the thing, real quick before I dive in. Here's initially what a lot of you think when I say Jonah. You think big whale. You think Sunday school. If you grew up with this, you think veggie tales. You think, um, you, you just think kind of children's Bible story, which kind of annoys me because we take these incredible narratives and stories and then we just make them nothing more than kind of children's story with kind of this moral outlet at the end. And usually we tell them at the exact wrong time. Like never use Jonah as the bedtime story for your kid, all right? Especially because we're kind of shady sometimes because you want to manipulate your kid into something. So like, hey, you need to obey. Story of Jonah, Jonah didn't obey God and he got swallowed by a gigantic fish and then vomited onto dry land. Or you're right before you go to bed, don't tell the story of Noah. Hey, there was once this whole group of people, in fact, it was the entire planet other than Noah's family, and they just didn't listen and obey God, which you should do. And so God sent a flood and it destroyed the entire world except for Noah and his family. Night, buddy, right? I like, like, you don't want to do that. Um, it, it, don't worry about the rain outside. There's a rainbow. Like, you don't want to do that. And so it, some of these stories become nothing more than children, Sunday school, big whale. And so as soon as I start to talk about this, you may be in that group where you're like, are you serious? Don't tell me you think this is legit. Don't you tell me you think this is actually something that happened in history, which I totally understand. But here's a couple of things that you should consider before I dive in, is that if you think this is nothing more than like a fairy tale or fable, which again, I, I totally get if that's where you're coming from, and it just kind of has a moral at the end, the thing that you should consider is generally fairy tales and fables aren't anchored to dates and addresses. You know what I mean? 
Um, the other thing is this, is that as you study it, Nineveh, which was located in Assyria, was a real place. This takes place in about 750 BC. You could study all of that for yourself, but it is a real place in history. And then thirdly, and we say this all the time, but here's really the biggest reason why we think Jonah is legit, that this is a real story that happened in history. And the reason is because Jesus took it seriously. In Luke 11 and Matthew 12, Jesus actually refers to Jonah as a real person, and this was a real event that happened in history. And I've said this hundreds of times, but it's worth repeating. This this is my simplistic apologetic, is that if Jesus, um, or really any guy, is able to predict their own death and their own resurrection and then pull that off, you go with whatever that guy says. Like the moment he walks out of a grave alive, it validated everything that he said. And so because Jesus was dead and then came back to life, I just believe whatever Jesus said. It's just a rule. If you can find a way to bring yourself back from the dead, I will take you seriously, regardless of how crazy the scenario is. So the moment Jesus walked out of a grave alive, it validated the fact that he referenced Jonah as real and true. And so here's the deal for you if you're investigating. The issue is not, was there really a whale that swallowed a man? The issue is, did Jesus really rise from the dead? Did that really happen in history? And there's so much evidence to support it. Because if that happens, you don't even have to go investigate the story of a whale. Oh, you were dead and came back to life and you said Jonah's real? All right, Jonah's real. Like, I'm I'm with you. So the issue for you is, and the, the place to start investigating is, did Jesus literally in history resurrect himself from the grave? Because if he did, it validates everything that he said. So... I don't know if you're tracking with any of that. Here's the last, the last thing. If you're in the category of like, well, I believe there's a creator God. He created people. He created the universe at some level, whether it was literal seven days or behind the Big Bang, however you see that. But there's a little, literal creator God of the universe. You just need to think about this. If we as finite individuals can figure out a way to manufacture basically little underwater cities, in the case of nuclear submarines that can go underwater for like six months at a time. Like if we as finite, just limited human beings can figure out a way to do that, maybe a creator God could figure out a way to manufacture a a fish that swallows a guy for three days. Like maybe he could figure that out. Okay, but all of that to say, and I got to move on. If you're still like, man, I just don't believe it. I think it's fairy tale. I think it's fable. I just think there's a good moral at the end of it. Here's what I want you to do for the next three weeks is I want you to consider this like the best movie that you've ever watched. I want you to consider it like the most powerful novel that you've ever read. And you knew it wasn't true. Maybe it was anchored in history. It was Civil War time period, but you knew it wasn't true, but it inspired you to do true things. It inspired you to do real things. And so if you're, if you're just like, I, I am having trouble really believing this, I don't want you to miss out from what might happen over the next three weeks. So I want you to look at this as the best movie ever, just like in the past, that inspired you to do something real because you may find something through the course of these three weeks that you never expected. And here's my agenda, just so you know, I'm not being shady. At the end of it, I hope you encounter what's really behind all of this, which is the central figure from Genesis to Revelation, which is not Noah, it's not Jonah in the whale, it's not Paul in the New Testament, it's Jesus, who in all of these stories is kind of this shadow of what is to come where Jesus would bring hope and life and forgiveness to planet Earth, and he is a real individual who did something in history that can change the destiny of your life, and that's really what's behind every story 
story in the scripture. So my hope, just so I'm not shady, is you start as, oh, it's a good story to there's something behind this story and it really is real and hope really is found in Jesus. That's where I want you to go. But if you don't, you can belong before you believe. And I want you to take the ride with us for the next three weeks as we look into the life of Jonah and see what it has to say in terms of what it looks like and what are the dynamics for every single runner who walks away from God, either with their lives or with just kind of that one area. So with all that, you can turn to Jonah. It's going to be on the screen you can download your YouVersion Bible app if you've got a phone, a smartphone in front of you. Um, or if you're new to this whole thing, um, you start in Matthew and go left. Because if you start in Genesis, um, you will never find the book of Jonah. So um, Matthew in like seven chapters over, seven books over. Here's how um, it picks up. But before I get to the first verse, here's the backdrop. Jonah's a prophet of God. Um, the prophet of God in the first century was somebody that God would come to, give a message to, and then they were to deliver it to a group of people. It was always unpopular. Nobody ever listened to them. They're basically like parents. They would just say stuff, and then nobody would do what they say. And so that's Jonah. God comes and says, here's the message I have for you. I want you to leave the comfortable confines of Israel, which is where Jonah's from, Everybody kind of had the same worldview. They believed in the one God, Yahweh. Um, he's comfortable there. He's known there, all of those things. And God says, okay, Jonah, I want you to leave Israel. I want you to go to Nineveh, located in Assyria, and I want you to deliver a message. And the message is basically, you guys are so far off the rails, it's unbelievable. I want you to change your mind. I want you to repent. I want you to U-turn with your lives. I want you to turn to God. And if you don't, I'm going to bring judgment. And so God's like, Jonah, this is what I've tasked you with. But Jonah knows about Nineveh. He knows about Assyria. He knows what these people are like. And so he basically comes to God and goes, okay, how about, how about I don't go and preach there? And I don't go and tell them about this. And you just rain down judgment right now. Like, why, why don't we just skip the, the, the process? And, and why don't you just go ahead and do what's going to be needed in the end anyway? Because here's what Jonah knew about Nineveh in Assyria. They won the gold medal every single summer for one specific um, kind of event, and that was that they were known for skinning people alive and keeping them alive the longest. Like, that's what the Assyrians were known for. And so Jonah's like, okay, God, thank you for considering this for me. Thank you for calling me to this task. But no, like, I'm not going to go to Nineveh. I'm not going to go to Assyria. These guys are crazy. And by the way, I'm from Israel. I speak the language. I know the culture. I'm comfortable with these people. I, there's no way I want to go over to Nineveh. And so with that as the backdrop, Jonah chapter 1, verse 1, here's where it picks up. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. And he says, verse 2, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because it's wickedness. Not like, oh, man, you're, you guys are watching some stuff on Netflix you shouldn't. No, you're skinning people alive. Stop it. Because it's wickedness has come up before me, but Jonah ran away. Because Jonah was incredibly political, kind of nationalistic. He was all about Israel, God's chosen people, were God's favorite people. God kind of puts up with everybody else in Jonah's mind. And so there's no way I'm leaving this to go over to this, to this group of people. I'm just not going to do it. It's not comfortable. We always roll up our windows when we drive through Nineveh. It's a strange place. I, I don't want to do it. So verse 3, Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. And he went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. And after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from 
the Lord. And, and here's what's really interesting is if you were to look at a map, is that Jonah is in Israel, pretend it's here, and, and kind of Nineveh and Assyria is up here. Jonah doesn't just, you know, run like a little bit, like I'll just kind of come outside the city, I'll find a place to stay for a little bit, somebody rent me an apartment. Jonah instead, rather than going here, goes over to Joppa, and as we'll find out, gets on a boat and goes southwest as far as the trade route would take him. He literally, in Jonah's eyes, he goes to the farthest end of the world as it was known at that time. And he picks the most dangerous thing imaginable, like especially if you had never done it, to get on a boat and to sail as far as Jonah is about to sail is like a suicide mission. It's ridiculous. It's the most unsafe thing in the world. And so you're like, Jonah, why don't you just go outside of town to a bed and breakfast or something and just wait for this thing to pass and then come back? But instead, Jonah goes away from Nineveh and to the farthest point in the world, as he saw it, that he possibly could in his running from God. He basically did what we do. Like, where a lot of cases where we walk away or run from God, we don't just kind of run away subtly. We're like, okay, this is what I want you to do. And in the back of your mind, it's like, well, that's exactly what I'm not going to do. Well, this is, this is kind of what I want you to, you know, kind of stay away from, her, him, this. And you're like, well, actually, that's exactly what I'm going to do. I'm going to run away from God in the complete opposite direction. And here's the thing about that. And I think this is true of all of us. I think this is like universal of every runner. That moment in your life that you can point to, maybe it's right now where you're running just at a macro level or in terms of that one decision. Here's what's true of every runner. When we begin to run from God, we run to the strangest places. Because our whole thing is about where we're trying to get away from with no thought of where to. And in Jonah's case, he picks the most dangerous, insane opportunity to run imaginable. But we do the same thing. Because your entire focus in that moment or with that decision becomes, I got to get away from this with no thought of where to. And so you start to wrestle with this thing of like, I just can't do that. I'm not going to do that. At some points, it even gets to, you know what, I'll show God. And so rather than get out of this relationship, I'm just going to marry her anyway. Well, that's going to work out great. Or you know what, I I just, I can't suppress this anymore. I can't do this anymore. I I can't keep running from what I know ultimately I want. It's going to make me happy. So I'm just going to sign the papers and we're just going to get divorced anyway. Well, that'll probably work out well. Or, you know what, I just, I just can't do it anymore. I can't handle this anymore. I'm just going to sign the deal. Even though I've wrestled in my conscience, I'm going to move into the partnership. I, I just don't care. And in our running, we run to the strangest places in the sense of there's going to be people, no doubt, around you on the outside of you looking in and go, what in the world are you thinking? Like, isn't it true that people always have crystal clear insight on the outside into the stupidity of our own decisions? And inevitably, and they don't even have to hold your worldview. They may not even believe the Jesus thing, but they just look out from just a common sense perspective and go, how did you think that was a good idea? Why did you think that was worth pursuing? How did you think that that was going to somehow in the end work out well for you? And they sit on the outside of us making these decisions and go, what in the world would cause you to go after that? And here's the reason. Because when you walk away from God, ultimately, you walk away from the source of wisdom and truth. 
When you walk away from God, you begin to make unwise decisions based off of this skewed view of reality around you. And you pursue that relationship, that deal, those lists of priorities, that pursuit, you make that decision, and everybody around you, whether they hold your worldview or not, are going, that is so unwise. You're not even seeing this correctly. How do you think she's going to work out well for you? Because when you walk away from God, you walk away from the source of wisdom and the source of truth. And here's the other ironic thing, that every time you walk away from God, not only do you forfeit wisdom and truth that you need to make that decision, you walk away and forfeit the very thing that you were after in the first place that caused you to run. Because for most of us, the reason underneath all of it The reason that we ran for God usually has something to do with a pursuit of pleasure, a pursuit of fulfillment, a pursuit of peace, and suddenly we walk away from God and we get to the end of ourselves somewhere down the road, and it's not just that we forfeited wisdom and truth, we actually forfeited the very thing that we were after in the first place because we run in the opposite direction of the center of fulfillment and pleasure and peace that can only be found in Christ. And so there Jonah is, and he's thinking what we think, well, I just, I'm smart, Um, I'm an individualist. I know what I'm doing. I don't need to follow what everybody else is doing around me. It's going to work out in the end. And it wasn't going to work out in the end. Because Jonah, like us, is making a decision that is leading to a predetermined destination. And it has nothing to do with God's love or God's grace. It has everything to do with a world that was manufactured by God with this system of cause and effect and wisdom built into it. And when we run away from him, we run away from and work against the very created order. We work and move in a place where we move to unwise decisions based on things that are not rooted in truth. And there Jonah is, and he doesn't even see it. He's not even clued into it. And so in verse four, it says, then the Lord, you just say this with me real quick, then the Lord. When you run away from God, eventually you will run into this. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. And all the sailors were afraid, which is saying something. These guys had done hundreds of missions. They weren't scared of much. They had seen everything before, but this, this storm is so violent that they're terrified. And so the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship, which meant they're going to lose a lot of money. But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep, And verse 6, the captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Like, Jonah, Jonah, Jonah. Like, isn't our situation obvious? Like, do you not hear and see what's going on? How how could, I mean, what, what is this? Like, you're in REM stages of sleep, just chilling in the bottom of this boat, and we're about to lose our life. And so he says, get up. And call on your little case G, because in their mind, there's just this pantheon of gods. And maybe he will take notice of us, and we won't perish. See, here's the other thing. When we begin to run away from God, we are always the last to see the connection. 
We are always the last to see the connection between our decisions, our pursuits, where we're stiff-arming God. We're always the last to see the connection between our decisions and the chaos that it ultimately creates. And we can move into multiple seasons of our life, and there's things that are flying out of control, and we have no idea that there's cause and effect, that there's a decision that's leading to a destination. Here's the kind of terrifying thing, and you can just mark this down. If if you're a parent, if you're a father, if you're a mother, and you're making decisions right now, you just know are out of bounds. There's priorities you know are out of whack, and you haven't abandoned God. You still pray. You still come to church, but you just have said no in this area. You, You have misprioritized some things, and there is chaos that is being created in your home. Just mark it down. Your kids will see the connection before you do. Your kids will make the connection between that decision, that pursuit where you're stiff-arming God and the chaos that it is creating in your home long before you ever will. Your spouse will see it before you do. Your friends will see it before you do. This is why... Like getting into community groups, like moving into next steps and getting connected is so powerful because at some point you need a group of people that you grow to trust and they trust you, one or two individuals. And at certain points and seasons of their life, there's an open door where they can speak into your life to go, what are you thinking? Why did you think that was a good idea? Like, why did you think that was going to work out? Why did you think that somehow that was going to produce a good outcome? And I love you enough to just say, listen, there's all these things that are spiraling out of control around you, and you just keep thinking, well, there's no connection, there's no connection. There's a connection. Your running is leading you to a place where you are way late to ever connect the dots. And so there Jonah is. And the sailors come to him, and they're basically, hey, Jonah, we're, um, we're having a prayer meeting on the deck, and we would love for you to join us right now because this is about to end badly. This ship is about to break apart. And so verse 7, the sailors said to each other, come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. Like even these guys saw the connection. Like their theology is off, but they saw the connection because they immediately thought in the pantheon of gods who did not hold to the virtue of love that if something bad were happening, the gods were raining down judgment, which is not the case. But in this case, they were right in the fact that there was a connection, that what Jonah did was leading to this outcome. And so they say, after they cast lots, verse 8, tell us who's responsible for making all this trouble for us. What do you do? Where do you come from? What's your country? From what people are you? And he answered, I'm a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land, which honestly, I wish I really would have stayed on at this point in the journey, but I didn't. This terrified them, and they asked, what have you done? Because they knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. And so the sea was getting rougher and rougher, and they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? And so they turned to Jonah, and they're like, Jonah, what do we do? And Jonah's like, you got to throw me overboard. And they're like, we're not going to throw you overboard. Listen, you got to throw me overboard. We're not going to throw you overboard. And then they look at the waves, and they're like, actually, we, we have to throw you overboard. Like, there's no other way out of this. And so they throw Jonah overboard into the water, and they sacrifice the one for the many. In verse 15, they took Jonah, they threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. 
And I don't know if you heard the story before growing up, how, how you envision it, but I always envision they throw Jonah overboard and immediately everything just quiets down, everything's calm. And maybe it happened by that, that way, but, but most likely it took a few moments and they throw Jonah overboard. He doesn't sink to the bottom and he's treading water. He's doing everything he can to stay alive. And within probably moments, everything calms down. The storm dissipates. The storm stops. And just imagine how awkward that is. I mean, the guys in the boat are like eyeball to eyeball with Jonah in the water and like everything calms down. What do we do now? Like, should we invite him back in? Should we, hey, Jonah, like what, like what do we do with this guy? And there Jonah is just in the water. There's the guys in the boat. Everything's calm. And, and Jonah's in the middle of the sea. <laughs> In verse 16, this is, this is my paraphrase, but this is what Jonah begins to understand at this point in his journey. It's that God's will is not going to be stopped. And God's plans are not going to be thwarted. And Jonah, you can run as far as you want to run, but here's what is simultaneously, again, terrifying and comforting. God's will for your life is going to be done. And the only question left to answer is, are you going to participate in it willingly or are you going to participate in it unwillingly? But God's plan is not going to be thwarted. And my will, it's not going to be stopped. And so verse 17, but the Lord. We tried now the Lord, that didn't work. So But the Lord, and here's what Jonah also begins to understand, is that no matter how far he's run, and this is true of us, no matter how far you've run, no matter how much carnage is kind of accumulated in the process, no matter how many scars are piled up, no matter how far you go, no matter the decisions that take place in the process, no matter how long the running is, God will never abandon you. God will never walk away. God will never stop waiting. God will never stop pursuing. And there Jonah is. And but the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights, which would mirror and be a picture of the fact that just a little while later, hundreds of years later, Jesus would come live the life we couldn't live, die the death we should have died, and after three days of being dead, walks out of a grave alive to offer salvation to all of humanity. And there Jonah is. And in Jonah 2.1, and this is the last verse I'm going to read, from the inside of the fifth fish, Jonah prayed. And I just put in my notes, I bet he did. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. And in that moment, Jonah recognized what ultimately I think every runner is going to recognize, which is all of us, is that you can run from God, but you will never be able to outrun God. You can run from God, you can stiff arm God, you can resist God, and you can do it as long as you want, as far as you want, but ultimately you can run, but you will not be able to outrun, which is amazing news, though it may not seem like it, because eventually along the way, God is going to provide something to get your attention. And sometimes it's really easy to see, like you even maybe look back at moments in your life like I do, and it's like, okay, I think that was God getting my attention. I think that happened because God was getting my attention. I think that was thrown in my path because God was trying to head me off. But that was obviously kind of God getting in the way. 
But other times, it's much more kind of subtle. And one of the ways that God will get your attention is to allow you to get exactly what you've been chasing the whole time that caused you to run away from God in the first place. And he will allow you to get what you've been chasing only to prove to you that what you've been chasing wasn't worth chasing once you finally caught it. And the thing that you thought it would provide, it did not provide. In that way, God's going, listen, now the Lord, but the Lord. You can run, you can keep going, you can keep resisting, but no matter how far you run, you will not be able to outrun. Because here's what the scripture says, and this is so powerful, is that when you enter into a relationship with the God of the universe, like you come to the place, and this is what we call the good news if you're still kind of figuring this out. You come to the place to understand, I cannot earn my way to God. I cannot be good enough. I cannot get things together enough to reach a standard of perfection. And so I'm trusting that God has done everything for me through Jesus, that Jesus lived the perfect life I couldn't live, died the death that I should have died for all of my sin, and three days later, he walked out of a grave alive. And when I place my trust in faith, not in me, but what he's done for me in that way, literally the scripture says in that moment, through that initiation of trust, you become a son and you become a daughter of God. And you are invited into the most intimate relationship possible where you can call God, this is shocking though it loses its shock value, you can call God perfect heavenly father. And just like a good earthly father will discipline his kids because he wants the best for his kids, our perfect heavenly father will discipline his kids because he wants the best for his kids. Proverbs 3 says it this way, that my son, don't despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke because the Lord disciplines those he, help me out, loves. As a father, the son, he, what is it? Delights in. That just like you, if you're, if you're a, a father, if you're a mother, if you, you, whoever you were raised by, just like a good parent or guardian will discipline in order to lead that child into a better way, into ultimately what they know is going to be best for them, so does our perfect heavenly father. And here's the thing. The thing right now that has caused you to confuse God with life, God, where are you at? God, why haven't you intervened? God, why have you let this happen? God, why aren't you here? Why aren't you loving me? Why aren't you intervening? All of those things that is causing you to doubt God may be the greatest evidence of his love for you. It may be the greatest evidence of his delighting in you. And can I just say this to you, if maybe you're in the midst of running, if you're watching and you're in the midst of running, God likes you. And as his son, as his daughter, in the midst of your running, he delights in you. And just like Jonah, his desire is not to come or to wait or to pursue in order to pay you back. His whole desire is to win you back. His whole desire is to bring you back. See, here's, here's the reality. Here's the truth. If you've trusted Christ, his love and his delighting in you is that you never have to worry about God paying you back. 
Payback happened at the cross through Jesus who absorbed all of your wrath and all of the punishment for my sin and your sin for all time. And then he walked out of a grave alive and wrote, it is finished, paid in full across all of humanity. I paid the debt. I absorbed what you deserve to carry. I did what you could not do for yourself. And now payback has been handled for all time on the cross. You never have to be worried about being paid back. The only thing that you should worry about is walking away from the source and the epicenter of wisdom and truth that you need for every area of your life. And God, in his grace, says to you, I am not pursuing and waiting and coming after you in order to pay you back. I already did that. I'm coming to win. I'm coming to get back. I'm coming to restore. I'm coming to assume my rightful place. I'm coming to move you into a place where you will actually discover the thing that you are pursuing, but it's only found in me. And as if you run, I am not angry with you. I'm heartbroken. Just like a good father would be with his kid. A few weeks ago, I think it was, my wife's in here, so she doesn't even know about this. I've told this the first two services, but I lost my daughter for a short period of time. And she's five, and her name's Brooke. And it wasn't like loss, big loss. It was like we were at her house, but I couldn't find her, which normally is not a problem because they're there somewhere. But like it was like going on, it's a little while, and I can't find her. And so we had just moved in this house um, a couple months ago, and there's a, there's a place on the side where there's no gate, so we have to fix the gate. But she's five, so I mean, she knows where to go, where not to go. But there's that moment where like I couldn't find her for a little bit. And usually as a dad, I think specifically, you try to maintain your chill like in the process. Um, moms usually freak out immediately, which you can totally understand. So I'm really glad Nicole was not there that particular day or that moment. But I'm like, I'm cool. And then like slowly, like the more you can't find your kid, the panic rises up in you. Um, and you like, as much as you're trying to be cool and chill, it's like you start to freak out a little bit and you start to yell, the decibel levels get louder. And like, I couldn't find her anywhere. And where we lived before that was like a townhouse. It was super small. So you never had to worry about that. Like, well, where's Brooke? Well, she's five feet around me somewhere because you can't go anywhere. In this case, like they can kind of get lost a little bit. Like, so it's, it's easy to lose them. And so I, I just couldn't find her. Gone upstairs. She's not there. Downstairs, I can't find her. Okay, I, I know she didn't like go out, but I started to go out the back and like yelling for her. Okay, Brooke, where are you at? And so, Brooke, daddy's looking for you. Brooke, daddy's looking for you. Brooke, daddy's, and it's just getting louder. Brooke, daddy's looking for you. And there's a little tinge of anger. Um, so I, I just, it starts to get louder and louder. And finally, I hear this little petite, soft, five-year-old girl voice coming from the left side of the yard. There's a little like play thing and, and she's kind of hiding behind it where I can't see her. And so I'm going, Brooke, daddy's looking for you. Brooke, daddy's looking for you. And then I just hear that little sweet voice. I'm not looking for daddy. I'm not looking for daddy. And, and here's the thing. For some of you, your, your running is so easy to spot. For others of us, you're running in, in the most subtle of ways, and nobody around you would even know it. You haven't abandoned faith. You, you would even say, I love Jesus. But if you were to really be honest, you're running. And your daddy's looking for you. And you're not looking for him. And his desire is not 
pay you back. This is what we sing about and celebrate, and it's why we can leave hopeful every single weekend, regardless of what's going on in our life, because we never have to worry about that judgment again. It's all about relationship. And the reason I know that is because 750 years after Jonah, 2,000 years ago, because of what Christ did on the cross and his invitation to you, no matter where you are, no matter what others think about you, and no matter how long it's been, is would you trust me? Would you let go of this misappropriated fear and ability to trust my goodness in your life? And would you trust me? And as you have walked away, my desire is to bring you back. And I really am heartbroken because you have moved away from the source of wisdom. You have moved away from the source of truth that I want to guide every area of your life. Would you just turn around? Would you just U-turn it? Would you just stop? And next week, I want to look specifically at this whole dynamic, and I want to give you a very specific invitation, but I'm not going to do that today. So you get kind of one more week to run <laughs> and to think about it and to grapple with it. But here's what I know already, whether you're in line, uh, online, whether you're listening to this podcasting somewhere, maybe you're in the room, and some of you are like, I'm, I'm already there. You're right, like you're talking to me and it's not because I know you. It's because this is the story of every runner. This is my story. And you would say, you're right, the decision led to an addiction. The pursuit led to a train wreck. The I'm gonna do this and figure this out on my, my own has led me to a place in my life where I am absolutely restless. The promotion is never enough. The sex is never good enough. The, the achievement never satisfies. And you just have been running. And the fact that you're here and that you're hearing this or you're listening to this somewhere is evidence that you can run, but you can't outrun. And that God in his grace will provide some now the Lord and but the Lord moments in your life to say, I want you back. I want you to trust me. I want you to turn in my direction. And just like a good father disciplines and gets the attention of his kid for their good, I want to get your attention for your good and my glory. Will you trust me? And so wherever you are, here's what I would recommend if you already know, man, I am in that place. Before you eat lunch, before you walk into the office, before you do whatever you're going to do this afternoon, is you just come to a place to throw up your hands and go, I don't know really where this is going to lead and I'm still fearful and God, I'm still struggling to trust, but God, I want to trust you. And so right now I surrender this or I surrender this and I want to follow you and I want to trust you and I want to U-turn my life and I want you to lead me. And I don't know fully how this works, but the scripture promises that somehow in some way God moves into that kind of declaration and begins to walk with you the way a loving friend would walk with you through the seasons of your life to lead you into something better, into something good that you will never be able to find on your own as you walk in the opposite direction of the wisdom and truth you need for your life. So we just all over the house, would you just bow with me in prayer and we're going to end with this. And it's not going to be an invitation. I'm just going to let the Holy Spirit do his thing and initiate specific responses as he sees fit. And so Jesus, I thank you for what you're doing in this place. 
thank you for what you're doing in individual hearts and lives. I thank you for the specific nature of how you speak and how you move and how you begin to get our attention and believing in faith. You've done that all over the place in all of our services and locations this weekend. And we're praying that over the next few weeks that you would bring many of us back. Some of us, we already know we've been running. Others of us, you're going to reveal to us that we've been running. And God, I just pray that our declaration or my declaration for whatever you show me is yes. I want to trust you. I believe, help my unbelief. And we pray all of this in the incredible name, the only name that is worthy of us gathering today, the name of Jesus. Amen.